0: Welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone. I am here with Jose Miguel Hernandez Lobato, who is a university lecturer in machine learning at the University of Cambridge. Miguel, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast.
1: Thanks a lot for inviting me.
0: Hey, I'm looking forward to digging in, learning a bit about what you're working on, but I'd love to have you start by sharing a bit about your background with our audience. How did you come to work in machine learning? So
1: that's a good question. So I was, uh, as an undergrad, always uh, interested in uh, artificial intelligence. And uh, obviously the exposure that I had to artificial intelligence was more the the traditional AI. For example, as an undergrad, I started uh, coding my own uh, chess programs uh, and so on. And then when I finished my undergrad, I was uh, deciding what to do. And uh, there was this opportunity of doing a PhD. And uh, at the time, the most uh, similar thing to a PhD in AI was focused on this topic of uh, machine learning. And I, I just started working in machine learning. And uh, actually, I think I was quite lucky because I started at a time where machine learning was not so popular and so hot. <laughs> and now recently, it has uh, exploded in interest uh, and uh, opportunities. So I think I was quite lucky to get just uh, when it was not so popular. And now I'm in a actually very good position to take advantage of that. That's awesome. Tell us a little bit about your research interests. Good. So yeah. So in, I'm a faculty in Cambridge uh, at the moment, and Cambridge is well known for having a strong focus on Bayesian methods. Mm-hmm. My interests are at the intersection of uh, Bayesian methods and deep learning, And I think uh, Bayesian methods, they bring a lot of uh, opportunities to quantify uncertainty, and uh, uh, this will help us a lot to solve many problems. Where uncertainty is very important, especially in decision making problems. For example, in active learning, if we want to know what data to collect next so that we learn fast about a particular problem, how to, for example, find new molecules with improved properties fast, we can also make use of this uncertainty. And even if we want to, for example, compress the parameters of neural networks so that they have a reduced size, for example, if we want to transfer a neural network to a smartphone or download it, for example, or we want to implement the neural network in hardware and we want to store the neural network in a low uh, memory device, you can use these techniques. And uh, in general, I'm very excited about the challenges of uh, obtaining and selling the estimates with deep learning. It's not a straightforward, but there are many opportunities for having a big impact by doing this. Mm.
0: If you were to taxonomize the different approaches that folks are taking kind of at this intersection of Bayesian and deep learning,
1: where is the activity happening right now? Good. So what happens at the moment is that, uh, as I said, it's not really easy to to obtain uh, accurate estimates of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And uh, in practice, the, the problem is intractable and you have to do approximations. So there are many different ways of doing these approximations. You could use, for example, sampling-based uh, methods that uh, draw approximate samples of a uh, posterior distribution. You could also think of, uh, instead of drawing samples, to come up with deterministic approximation that quantifies your uncertainty. This would be, for example, a Gaussian distribution. You will try to obtain a Gaussian distribution that uh, quantifies your uncertainty about the weights of your neural network. These are, this is a different approach, and uh, another Alternative is to have something even kind of in between of the two, something more flexible than a Gaussian, but uh, not as complicated as drawing samples. And uh, this could be, for example, implicit models that uh, work with uh, very flexible distributions. So people work a bit on these different uh, techniques to obtain uncertainty estimates. And at present, uh, there is not really like a very well. like like one method that is really known to be better than the others. And there is a lot of activity of trying to come up with methods that have good trade-offs in terms of the computational cost that it takes to obtain these uncertainty estimates and the the quality of the the uncertainty estimates. Mm. And
0: one of the areas that you've been applying this kind of work is around,
1: in some recent papers, around molecular design? Yeah, that's right. So that's an area that I'm really excited about. Finding new molecules with uh, improved properties is really challenging. So usually you have to propose a new molecule, and maybe you have to collect data to see how good that molecule is. And based on that data, you may update your models and propose another molecule, and the whole process repeats. And the idea is how to achieve this in a way that uh, you find faster some molecule with good uh, with good properties.
0: Is there a particular aspect of this problem that lends itself to a Bayesian approach or where these uncertainty estimates are particularly useful or
1: are those kind of separate areas of research for you? So the, the uncertainty estimates in this case are, are very useful because uh, you will use your uncertainty to guide the search for better molecules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so typically you will want to collect data on uh, on those molecules for which you have a chance of getting good results. And this means that there should be some uh, uncertainty or some probability that uh, the value or the properties of the molecule are actually maybe better than what you found before. So you will use this uncertainty and actually the the quality of your predictions for the properties of the molecules to decide what what molecules to find uh, next. the, the molecules that you will choose are those that have, that have some uh, trade-off between uh, if you think about it, the point estimate of how good the molecule is, but also some uh, high uncertainty. And uh, when you, you are able to balance these two things, like molecules where you have uncertainty and there is the probability that you will obtain actually something uh, better than what you have found uh, before, then you will be interested in collecting data for those molecules.
0: Got it. And now you've taken a couple of different approaches to to this problem. One paper was focused on kind of searching over the possible chemical reactions. And then more recently, you're doing this via 3D and 3D space. And this was a paper that was featured or that you presented at ICLR recently. That's
1: right. So, yeah. So (laughs) the whole thing of uh, finding new molecules is actually quite challenging because molecules are discrete objects, and they have a lot of uh, structure. And it's not really straightforward how to come up with something that uh, looks like a a realistic molecule, like the ones that you find in the real world. So the approach that we follow to do this is to use deep generative models. And these are going to be deep neural networks that are trained on large amounts of existing molecules, for example, and they will be able to generate new molecules. And the question is, how do you want to represent the molecules uh, and uh, how do you want to train these models to generate new molecules? So, obviously, you may want to synthesize those molecules in practice. So, what you could do is to have a deep generative model that is trained on existing data about chemical reactions, how, how existing molecules are synthesized using chemical reactions. And then you will be able to generate molecules via chemical reactions. So, the model will tell you how to synthesize the generated molecules. The other approach that is also actually quite important is based on the actual location of the atoms. So most uh, generative models of molecules, they work using molecular graphs. And uh, you will just uh, generate a a graph with the the atoms that form the molecule and the connections between those. But there is a lot of important uh, structure in the 3D configuration of the atoms that is missed by these models. And uh, another approach is to actually generate molecules uh, in 3D space instead of generating these molecular graphs. That is what the the approach based on uh, chemical reactions uh, does. You can generate the molecules in 3D space, placing one atom and then connecting that atom with previous ones and so on. And uh, the advantage of this is that you have actually more information about the structure of the molecule, and this can be very important for determining the properties of the molecule. As an example, you have that... uh, the molecule of water actually is not uh, the the way the the hydrogen atoms are connected to the oxygen atom is not, uh, for example, flat. You you have like a small angle between the mm-hmm. the bonds, and this gives the molecule of uh, of water specific properties. And if you just uh, work with graphs without taking into account, for example, this angle between the bonds, then uh, you won't be able to to capture those properties. So that's why I think uh, capturing these properties and being able to generate molecules in three D space is is. Uh, Is quite interesting. Yeah, so I I just want to say that, uh, just to motivate this, at the moment there is a huge interest in uh, the application of deep learning methods to this problem because there are many, many opportunities to, in particular, accelerate the design of new drugs, for example. Mm -hmm. This is something that is very, very expensive. Companies are spending uh, huge amounts of money into designing new drugs, and deep learning now is offering a lot of uh, possibilities to accelerate uh, this process. Got it. I can see how having
0: worked with this data in the kind of the two-dimensional kind of the flat graph realm would leave you wanting to try a 3D approach. Did your specific approach, your architecture for approaching the 3D problem, did you start over or was that kind of built on the, what you did for
1: the, the 2D problem? Yeah, so actually, the work on 3D is uh, one of the first works in this area. So we really were <laughs> starting almost from scratch. Uh, okay. And the approach is at the moment uh, not as uh, sophisticated as previous models, but uh, we are able to successfully generate these molecules in 3D space. So some of the molecules that we are generating in, in 3D space, they are relatively simple, much simpler than the ones generated with the uh, previous models. But uh, it's really exciting. Just to clarify how we do this, The idea is uh, to have a reinforcement learning agent that is going to learn how to place these uh, atoms in a space. The agent is given an initial bag of atoms, and uh, the the agent has to to choose what atoms to place in a space and how to arrange those. And the only feedback that the agent gets is uh, the final energy or the configuration, the energy of the configuration of the atoms. So the agent has to learn by trial and error how to find 3D configurations of atoms, that have low energy and they are physically plausible in the real world.
0: Mm. And so some of the traditional challenges with reinforcement learning are the sample inefficiency and the challenges of creating the objective function. How did issues like that manifest themselves in this paper?
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. So typically reinforcement learning methods are data hungry. And uh, the way we address this is to use some uh, fast numerical uh, methods that uh, approximate the, the energy of the atoms in a space. So we are actually able to collect uh, a relatively large amount of data to find this. The problem with this is uh, that uh, obviously you may want to find molecules that are stable and that have like this 3D configuration that is uh, physically possible, but you may also want to find molecules with interesting properties. And the question is that then you have to combine these two different uh, objectives. One is the energy of the molecule that might be cheap to obtain. And then you may also have another property of the molecule that could be actually quite expensive to obtain. You may have to do experiments in a laboratory to finally test if the properties of that molecule in the real world are, are the ones that you would expect. So in practice, you would have to find a balance between how to combine the two approaches. -hmm. And uh, one way to do this is to use, for example, subrogate models. Mm -hmm. These models will, for example, make predictions about the expensive properties based on uh, some existing data. And the reinforcement learning agent will try to, will be working with the predictions of these subrogate models that will be very fast to evaluate. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to what degree have you integrated in kind of the Bayesian approach into this? Reinforcement learning
1: oriented formulation of the problem. Uh, good. <laughs> in the reinforcement learning approach, we haven't really done that yet, <laughs> but we have done that in the case of the, for example, the models with uh, chemical reactions. Mm-hmm. And the the idea here is uh, to use something called the Bayesian optimization methods. Mm-hmm. Bayesian optimization methods are actually this is in the two D world, correct? Yeah, that's in the two D in the two D graph uh, setting. Mm-hmm. The idea is that. Bayesian optimization methods work also by using these uh, surrogate models. And the idea is that you will fit, for example, a predictor of the properties of the molecule that gives you estimates of uncertainty. And this could be, for example, a Gaussian process. These are very good models that work quite well to provide uh, estimates of uncertainty. And uh, then you can use these uncertainties to decide what data to collect uh, next. What is super interesting is that We are using deep generative models to generate the molecules. But uh, to connect these models with our Bayesian optimization approach, what we do is that we work with the latent representation of molecules given by the deep generative models. These deep deep generative models, like variational autoencoders, they learn a compressed representation of the data. They have some Mm -hmm. latent variables. And uh, by using these models, we are actually able to map molecules to a low dimensional Uh, latent space that is actually continuous. And then we can uh, map points from this uh, latent space back to the original uh, space of molecules. Mm -hmm. So what we do is then use Bayesian optimization techniques to do molecule optimization in this latent space. So this this is like a super interesting idea. And uh, the advantage of this is that you have now an approach that is going to do efficient optimization, because you are using these baseline optimization methods that work very well in continuous spaces and relatively low dimensional. And we are combining these methods with a deep generative model that will generate molecules that are similar to those found in the real world. And uh, this is going to be done in a way without uh, having any expertise on how the the molecules are constructed. You just have a data set of molecules, you feed your deep generative model to this data, you obtain this latent space that represents the molecules in a continuous representation, and then you can do molecule optimization in that, uh, in that space. Mm-hmm. So this is some uh, areas where I'm uh, currently working uh, quite a lot with uh, members of my group. Got it. And does the surrogate
0: model extension to the, the 3D setting allow you to do
1: similar things? Yeah, in principle, you could do similar things. This is something that we haven't really explored yet, but you could have your reinforcement learning agent optimizing some uh, combined objective between the energy of the molecule that you are constructing and the, the prediction of the property of the molecule according to the solar model. model. This is uh, obviously something that we haven't done yet, but it's uh, a very exciting direction for, for the future work.
0: Mm-hmm. Awesome, awesome. So you also do some work in compression. Tell us about that.
1: That's right. So this is something that is also an area where I am really excited about. This is some work that uh, has been done by some uh, of my PhD students, in particular Martin Hamasi and uh, Greg Flamik. And uh, this is a completely radical new way of doing compression. So most compression methods, they actually work by uh, mapping, for example, a sequence of, of characters to another representation of that sequence that has a size that is uh, proportional to the log probability of the original sequence. This is what typically you do in compression. And it's well known that the information that a particular value of a random variable has is is determined by the log probability of this uh, random variable. So typical methods for compression, they just uh, compress a specific value of a random variable. They find a new representation that is uh, more efficient. And there are many methods for doing this, like. Arithmetic coding is is an example. What is really cool of the methods that we are working with, which uh, we call them relative entropy coding methods. The idea is that we are not really compressing one value of a random variable. We are compressing random samples. So we just have distributions. We could have like a base distribution that is shared by the sender and the receiver. And what we want to compress is a random sample from a, a target distribution. And we don't really care exactly about the particular sample that we get. We just want to be able to transmit a random sample from this target distribution to the receiver without actually telling the receiver what the distribution we are sampling from. The receiver only has this base distribution that is shared between the sender and the receiver. And uh, yeah, we call this method the relative entropy coding. And what is interesting is that this technique is able to find Uh, compressed representations of the weights of neural networks that are currently state-of-the-art. These methods are really state-of-the-art for compressing neural networks.
0: Mm. And so how does compressing the distribution lend itself to compressed communication from the sender to the receiver? Yeah, so what you actually
1: do is uh, you don't really send the distribution, so you just uh, send some uh, bits that uh, will allow the receiver to reconstruct a random sample. And this uh, random sample, in general, the sender doesn't really control what sample you send. You just uh, are able to choose randomly one and then send some bits to the receiver. And the receiver will take those bits, use the shared distribution, the base distribution that is shared between the sender and the receiver, and use that uh, base distribution to recover the sample. So in general, you don't really send the the distribution itself, but you are able to send the samples from the distribution.
0: And that's because the distribution, the the compressed distribution, is you consider it as pre-shared. It's it's known to both sender and receiver.
1: Yes, that's right. So that's that's that in, that's some information that is agreed between sender and receiver. And typically, this could be a very simple distribution that is easy to sample from. For example, a standard Gaussian distribution, mm-hmm. and the. What is interesting of this method is that uh, you are really just sending random values of random variables without caring much about the the value of those. And this is extremely useful for compressing the weights of neural networks, because neural networks are very, very tolerant to perturbation of the weights. So it might be fine if you just send some uh, randomly corrupted version of your weights, your neural network might still be able to make uh, accurate predictions using that corrupted version of the weights. So by doing that, by sending some uh, a small perturbation of the weights and not exactly caring about sending a specific value of the weights, we are able to achieve uh, the best uh, existing compression rates for neural networks. Got it.
0: But you might not want to apply this to traditional communication.
1: That's right. So the question is, uh, what type <laughs> of communication you can uh, apply this to? Yeah. It turns out that you can actually apply this to many other types of uh, data, not only the, the ways of neural networks. For example, images, you may say, I want to send uh, some image. You may also tolerate some uh, error in your image. And it turns out that uh, it might be fine if you send just uh, some uh, version of, the, of your image that is slightly corrupted. This is usually called the lossy compression. So mm-hmm. you won't be able to send the original image, but uh, the reconstruction quality of the image could be still quite good. And uh, obviously, all this uh, depends on the trade-off that you have between how much you want to compress the image, and you would have a potential loss, and maybe you don't want to compress the image so much, and the, the loss is not so high. Mm-hmm. And then you've
0: also been applying deep generative models to robust prediction. Tell us about that
1: work. That's right. So this is something that uh, we have been really working on uh, very recently, and there is a lot of interest in, uh, in this area. So it turns out, I mean, this is widely known, uh, deep learning methods, they are not very robust, especially to spurious features, for example, that could be looking as uh, useful to make predictions in your data, but they're actually not like this. And the, the typical example of this is this problem where you have to classify images of camels and images of cows. And you could imagine that the cows appear typically with a background of a green field, and the the camels could appear with a background of a desert. And if you try to feed a deep deep learning method to classify these images, the deep learning method is very likely to fix on the background pixels, uh, which are not really representative of what you want to learn. Mm -hmm. It's not really differentiating between the shape of the cow and the camel. And when you try to make predictions then, for example, for a cow that is standing in a beach and not in a green field, then uh, it's going to make uh, horrible mistakes. Mm -hmm. So the idea is then, how can you make uh, deep learning methods more robust uh, so that they don't uh, fix on these uh, patterns in the data that are just uh, spurious and they are not really representative of the prediction problem that you want to solve. So there, there has been a lot of interesting work in this area especially uh, with some methods called the uh, invariant risk uh, minimization. And they actually come up with solutions to this problem, but they are based on using linear models. And obviously linear models, they are not really uh, going to be uh, very accurate in many different settings where actually the patterns in the data are not linear. So what
0: well, let's, we propose... Let's start with invariant risk minimization as yeah, a... Yeah, that's right. Concept. So this is the
1: work on... Uh, yeah, that's right. You know about this work. It's very widely known and it's, it's having... It's had like a lot of impact.
0: I was going to, to ask that you explain that as a, a broad concept, independent of linear versus nonlinear.
1: Yeah. So the idea is that uh, you want to find some, uh, the idea here to solve this problem is to find some predictor that is going to be invariant across uh, different representations of the data or, or environments. So that, for example, you could imagine that you have these images of the camels and cows and the the type of background maybe uh, changes slightly in across two different uh, versions of your data set. And then what happens is that these correlations between the background pixels and the target label is going to change from one version of the data and the other. Maybe in one version of the data, uh, the fraction of the cows with the green fields is slightly higher than in another version of the data. Mm -hmm. So if you have a predictor that focuses on these uh, pixels, then it's going to be... Changing across these uh, environments. So, in, in some uh, environments, uh, the predictor could be more reliable, and in other environments, it might be less reliable. And this allows you to identify that the, the patterns that the predictor is uh, capturing are probably not re- realistic and, uh, and spurious. So, the idea is to find some predictor that uh, will be invariant and is going to work well across different environments. And for example, this, this predictor that focuses on the shape of the cow or the camel. Will be invariant, And the idea is to, to have a predictor that, for example, could work in the in the nonlinear case. So I can, I can say briefly how we solve this problem. Yeah. And the idea is that we use uh, deep generative models also to solve uh, this problem. And we use something really cool and that is really exciting uh, at the moment. And it's a family of uh, deep generative models of variational autoencoders that are identifiable. This is well known that the uh, existing variational autoencoder models If you feed them to the data, the latent variables that you will be obtaining could be different if you train uh, different times your methods. So there are many different transformations of your latent variables, and the model could just uh, learn to, to achieve those transformations. So in general, every time you learn your model, the latent variables that you could obtain encoding the data could be different. And this makes these methods not very reliable if you want to use the latent variables for predictions. What has been very uh, recently developed is a family of uh, deep generative models or variational encoder models that are identifiable. And this means that every time you train these models on the data using, for example, different initializations of your neural networks, you will always obtain the same latent variables. Hmm. And actually, this can be useful for solving this uh, invariant risk immunization problem. The idea is that you will find latent variables that represent the data and then you can use uh, causal identification methods to choose those latent variables that are actually predictive of the target property. So in the case of the images and the, of camels and cows, you could think of uh, fitting a, an identifiable variational autoencoder model to this data. And then finding some latent variables that some will be describing the grass and other variables will be describing the shape of the cows and the camels. And uh, using the causal identification methods, you can choose those latent variables that are actually connected with the shape of the, of the cows and the camels with the final label. And the other latent variables like the green fields and the, that that determine the, the green field or the uh, desert, uh, they won't be captured uh, and they won't be identified as causally related to the to the target label.
0: Can you give us an overview of how the causal identification part of that works?
1: That's right. So what happens is that you have an underlying causal model. So you have these latent variables that you have learned with the identifiable variational encoder model, and you have now data for the values of the latent variables and data for the target property. And obviously, you also have data for the different environments that I mentioned before. All this works only if you have these different environments where things, uh, things uh, change. So once you have observations from these latent variables, you can try to identify what's the actual causal direction in the generation of the data. If, for example, Mm -hmm. the latent variable points towards the the label, and that means that the label is actually generated by the latent variable, or actually the label for the image points towards the latent variable. And that means that actually the latent variable is caused by the label. So the causal identification methods, they will apply either independence tests to identify what is this uh, right direction for the for the arrows uh, that connect the different uh, variables or they are based on other underlying assumptions like for example something that uh, that is used in practice is to assume that the label is uh, obtained as a non-linear transformation of the latent variable plus some uh, additive noise. And if you have a model that works in that way, you, you have that the label is actually generated as a nonlinear transformation of the latent variable plus some noise. You can actually identify the right direction by just fitting the nonlinear model in both directions. You can try to use a nonlinear model to predict the, the label from the latent variable, or a nonlinear model to predict the, the latent variable from the label. And uh, you can then look at the statistical patterns in the noise. And uh, the, the right direction will actually have specific properties that allows you to, to identify that. This is some work on, uh, on Caps and Inference <laughs> that has been really exciting. This was done uh, in uh, Bernard Stolkov's lab, uh, And this work actually that we are, I mean, we are working on this and we plan to submit it to NeurIPS. Uh, this is done also in collaboration with uh, Bernard Stolkov and one of my PhD students. Uh, got it, got it. Um, and
0: so how... In the, the case of this last work that we've been discussing,
1: how do you evaluate the results and how well is it working? Good. So, yeah. So right now, uh, evaluating the performance of these methods is challenging. And right now, there is a benchmark problem that people are considering for the evaluation of these methods. And this is called the colored MNIST. Uh, it's a mm. I mean, MNIST, everyone is familiar with MNIST, <laughs> everyone that works in in deep learning. So you have the MNIST this data set with digits and uh, you will have that uh, some digits are have different colors so you color the the digits with the colors are red or or green and you will choose these colors in a way that they are squarely correlated with the target label so you will have some of these fake correlations between the colors and the target label and mm-hmm. uh, obviously for example you could say i mean you, you typically classify the digits uh, into categories i think from uh, 0 to 4 is category 1 and from 5 to 9 is category 2 so you will say the color of the digit uh, most of the times agrees with the actual category so you have these colors that are, are correlated with the with the label and what happens is that you have two different versions of your data where this uh, probability of agreement of the color with the label uh, changes slightly and this is related to this thing that i mentioned before that uh, you need some uh, variation in the in the spurious correlations to be able to identify them as uh, spurious Mm -hmm. so you can then train uh, deep learning methods on this data and uh, what happens is that the test uh, data actually the color has no (laughs) no association at all with the, with the label. So actually if you train a deep learning method on this data and then you evaluate the predictive performance on the test data, a normal deep learning method is going to perform uh, extremely poorly because the colors are actually the opposite. <laughs> the, the correlation of the colors are, is, is the opposite uh, at this time. So you could use uh, this, uh, this ben- benchmark to see how well uh, you are doing. And uh, actually, we have extremely good results in this, uh, in this benchmark because we are able to both find non-linear representations of the data and also uh, non-linear predictions. We are able to do non-linear predictions uh, with the methods that we have developed. We achieve uh, some of the, of the best existing results in this, uh, in this particular benchmark. Awesome. Awesome. And talk a
0: little bit about how your broader work around applying bayesian methods and uncertainty
1: estimation
0: applies in this particular problem
1: that's right so in this case the idea is the variation out encoder model so we have this uh, latent variable model that explains Mm -hmm. uh, how the data is uh, generated and uh, obviously you have latent variables so these are variables that are not really observed Uh, so the, the the deep generative model uses these latent variables to generate the data, but you don't observe those. Uh, so you really need to infer those latent variables uh, from the data. And uh, you need to use uh, Bayesian methods for this. For example, you have to do something called the typically variational inference, where you fit a, a simple approximate distribution to, to the posterior distribution over the latent variables. So you could use a variational inference to solve this problem. However, it's much better if you use uh, other techniques. Uh, And uh, this is what I mentioned before about the different trade-offs that you have in Bayesian methods, that you could have uh, simple methods that are maybe uh, computationally cheap and they they work relatively well, but you could have uh, more advanced methods that are maybe more expensive, but they can be much more accurate. And an example in this case could be sampling-based methods. Uh, You could think of instead of using variational inference, uh, which is what most people use when they train variation autoencoders, you could use uh, a sampling-based method to to do something more efficient and more accurate in this case. Awesome.
0: You've got a few other papers at this latest iClear conference. Yeah. Uh, Why don't we quickly kind of talk through those? One of them is
1: this activation level uncertainty. Yeah, so I can can, uh, talk a bit about some of those papers as well. There is also another paper which I'm also really excited about and it got an, uh, an oral presentation at iClear. And uh, it's called the uh, Clue. And it's okay. a, a method uh, for interpretability in machine learning. Right now, there is a lot of interest in trying to open the black box of uh, deep learning methods. No? You, you train these methods, and you don't really know why they make some predictions. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of people have been focusing on interpretability methods for normal deep learning techniques. And they will say, oh, my deep learning method now says that my... The loan should be rejected, for example. And uh, you're interested in knowing why that happens. Mm -hmm. However, as I mentioned before, uncertainty is very important in many uh, decision-making problems and in many prediction tasks. And uh, if you care about uncertainty, you may have that your Bayesian deep learning method just tells you, uh, I don't really know what's what's the, the, the prediction in this particular setting. For this particular data point, maybe I don't really know if you should be given your loan uh, or not, or not. So I'm, I'm very uncertain about uh, what the right uh, prediction should be. Yeah. And uh, the question is then, why is your Bayesian deep learning method uh, uncertain, uncertain? You may want to actually try to understand what's uh, maybe uh, making in the data your deep learning method uncertainty, uncertain. Right. So conventional
0: uh, explainability is focused on the prediction, and in this clue paper, you're focused on the uncertainty estimate.
1: That's right. We are actually focusing on interpreting uncertainty estimates and trying Mm -hmm. to come up with the interpretability of uh, why deep learning methods uh, might be uncertain. And (laughs) what is interesting is that we also use uh, uh, deep generative models and variational encoder models uh, for this. Okay. Uh, So the idea is that we... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's similar techniques. And uh, obviously, there are many applications of these methods. Sure. So, what we do is uh, we, we say, okay, OK, we have this Bayesian deep learning method, and it's saying that this particular data point is it's highly uncertain. Mm-hmm. So, what we do is we train a deep generative model, a variation autoencoder model on the data. And this will map the data into some uh, low dimensional latent space. And now, what you can do is try to find new points in this latent space that are close to the original data point, but where the uncertainty of the neural network, when you decode those latent points back and you make predictions, the neural network becomes more confident. So by doing this, we are now able to say, you have this data point for which your neural network is very uncertain. Now I have this other data point that is very close to the original one, but the neural network is much more confident and it's much more certain. And now you can look at the two data points, the one for which the neural network is uncertain and the one for which the neural network now is confident. And this will give you a lot of uh, information telling you why the neural network is uncertain. You can look at the differences between the two data points and uh, you will be able to understand why why this is the case. And we have tested this on obviously MNIST. We have these MNIST digits and we get some of these digits. We have, for example... A four looks like a nine, but it, you, you wouldn't really be able to say this is a four this is a nine. And then this method precisely tells you the, the pixels in the image that are actually creating the confusion in the Bayesian deep learning method. It's highlight, highlighting, for example, those pixels that uh, make the four look like a nine uh, or not. And I, I'm really excited about this, because I think it's opening now a new area for research into in ent- interpretability. Because people will now think, okay, now we can apply interpretability methods to uncertainties and we can try to understand better why our methods uh, don't know what they they should know. Mm. So
0: help me understand how the approach helps you interpret what's happening. So you are finding close points in the latent space and we understand kind of some geometric properties about the relationships between points in the latent space but we don't necessarily understand the latent space itself and kind of what the dimensions in that space mean so how does knowing how do you get from kind of knowing that two close points share similar values how do you get from there to understanding the the causes or being able to interpret
1: yeah, so that's, that's a good question. So why this, this whole thing works you know, and how, how just operating in this latent space makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that the latent space, the way you train this, these models is that the latent space has uh, some uh, structure and it captures some similarity between the, the different data points. So if, because the latent space has low dimension, you will have to find some uh, compressed representation of, of data points in this latent space. And whenever two data points are close to each other in the latent space, they should still exhibit some similar patterns or regularities. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to to compress the data. Mm -hmm. So we know that now data points in latent space that are close to each other should be uh, relatively similar. So our goal is to find these different versions of the original data point for which the neural network is uh, more confident. The uncertainty is less. So what we can do is now, uh, map these points from latent space into the predictions of our model by just decoding from the latent space, feeding that as an input to the Bayesian neural network, and then getting the the value of the answer. And then you could just do gradient-based optimization in the latent space to find some uh, a new point in the latent space that decodes into something that the, the neural network is uh, highly, m- like m- much more confident. And obviously, mm-hmm. you want to stay close to the original point, because otherwise what you would get could be very different and that would be not, not very informative. Not if you just say, oh, this is a data point where you are very confident and the other one where you are very uncertain no, no, no. and no. They're very, they are completely different, you don't really find anything, right. any pattern there that could explain why things happen. So this, this technique is actually called the counterfactual. It's a, it's a counterfactual method for interpretability. And what typically means is that you say, I have this data point and actually my predictions are very uncertain and by using this counterfactual uh, approach you say how my data point should have been so that my network is very confident in your predictions that's that's what we are we are trying to do a counterfactual by saying uh, okay this is the data point that i got now imagine that uh, things would have been otherwise and i got another version of this data point for which my neural network is uh, much more confident. And then by just uh, sticking to something that is close in latent space, but where the uncertainty actually decreases quite quickly, then we are able to, to obtain these uh, this in- informative uh, data points. Got it. Got it.
0: Awesome. Well, Miguel, thanks so much for joining us and sharing a bit about what you're up to.
1: Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks a lot for inviting me. Awesome. Thank you.